Hey, what's going on? Oh, not much. Making some lunch. How are you? I'm good. I wanted to talk to you because we've talked about this before. And one of the, the love languages which we're discussing today is giving gifts. I think a bidet is a good gift. <laughs> no, it's a horrible gift. Let me let me let me give my rationale, right? Okay. One, it's something people don't buy for themselves that is very practical and useful. And I think if you just get over the weirdness of a butt fountain, it's a great gift. No, no, maybe, maybe as a housewarming gift, but even then, like that's one way too personal. How is it personal? Everybody has a butt. Everyone has a butt, but then like just a weird gift. Like, do you think that we're not properly cleaning ourselves? Like, That's not the assessment. It's more like you could be cleaning yourself more and <laughs> you could be environmentally friendly about it. I don't know. I think you would kind of have to have a very sincere conversation before you disperse this gift on someone. Please do not give me a bidet. <sighs> All right. I'm going to I'm going to go I'm going to go talk to Dr. Johnson about this. <laughs> okay, good luck. Hello and welcome to Out of Love, the show where we try to make sense of love and I try to make sense of how I'm going to officiate a wedding. My name is Dan Castarella. And I'm doing good. I'm on some new shit. Today's show, Dr. Johnson returns, and we talk about the five love languages. The five love languages are a concept that originated from Dr. Gary Chapman, a marriage counselor. They were first published in his 1992 book, The Five Love Languages. They are five different general ways that romantic partners receive and express love to one another. And they are... Acts of service. You show your love for others through action by doing something helpful for your partner, such as chores, cooking, and running errands. Anything you do to ease the burden of responsibility for your partner. Physical touch. The love language of physical touch is when you feel more connected and safer in a relationship through a physical presence with your partner. This could be from back rubs and holding hands to intercourse. Don't get this confused with sexual desire or PDA. The love language of physical touch is one that calms, heals, and reassures through contact with your partner. Quality time. Giving your partner quality time through either conversation or shared experiences. During this time, you are present, giving your undivided attention to your partner by actively listening and engaging with them. Receiving gifts. Giving your partner thoughtful gifts and gestures that show you care and they are loved. These gifts can be something bought, made, or cooked from scratch as frequently as you'd like. Words of affirmation. This is when you express your love through sincere words and explain the reason behind them. It's not just saying, I love you, but sharing why you love them, what makes them special, and what makes them stand out above the other 8 billion people on planet Earth. Words of affirmation. Quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Now, you've probably seen these before in online quizzes or parodied in tweets that say something like, pizza is my love language. But I was curious if these actually are tools for helping open communication in a relationship or if it's just a BuzzFeed quiz ahead of its time. So I turned to our resident psychology expert, Dr. Kareem Johnson, to discuss our own love languages and if they mean anything. And we ended up actually having a pretty insightful conversation about self-reflection, and expectations within relationships. So without further ado, here's Dr. Johnson. 
Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for coming back. Everyone loved your first appearance. Ah, well, it's always great to talk to you, Dan. I'm you know, happy to do it anytime. I love it. Now, we're talking about the five love languages today. Have you read this book? You know, I will admit that I haven't read the whole book, but we definitely, my wife and I definitely have the book in the house. I have skimmed it. It's been a topic of conversation between us many times. I certainly can't take credit for the ideas, but I can add my sort of official psychologist hat to a very popular pop psychology. And with some, what I think with some very actually genuine, genuinely good ideas behind it. I listened to it as a book on tape in preparation for this episode. It's not a great read. It kind of does work better as like five memes. Sure. But let's let's break them down. The five love languages are words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, receiving gifts, and physical touch. Now, to start things off, I had us both take the love languages quiz. You could take it online. It's on their website. Here were my results. So my top love language was quality time at 33%, words of affirmation at 23%, acts of service equally at 23%, Physical touch and receiving gifts both tied at 10%. Now, before I give my perception on that, just off of those results, what do you think that says about me? I had quality time not as one of my tops, but it was in in the middle there. And I was thinking that, you know, with quality time, I think a lot of what a good relationship is is built on, at least for some of us, is I, we had talked before about kind of different dimensions of love, like one is intimacy, one is commitment, one is passion. And I think the quality time is probably really speaking to some of that intimacy and commitment stuff. That is the time that you spend with someone that may allow you to feel like you're close to them, where words might not be enough for you. It may be that you need to have a certain amount of time earned with you. Maybe you're someone that's suspicious a little bit. And so the kind of time put in is someone kind of paying their dues to let you know who they are. Absolutely. I do think this is very accurate because I think the the most genuinely great thing you can do with another person, you can give to another person is your time. You can do an infinite amount of things with your own personal time. Now, whether we do or whether we don't when we're alone is a completely different thing, but you have the potential to Learn something new. You have the potential to see anybody in your circle that you want. Call them if you want or just watch TV or movies. It's completely up to you. And to say, my time is so valuable, I want to share an experience with you, that to me I think is really special. And I never take that for granted when another person is saying, let's go to the beach together. Let's talk on the phone together. Let's go to a bar together when we used to go to bars in the 90s. And so I definitely think that that's super accurate for me. Absolutely. To give someone your time is its own form of gift. To put kind of a dark spin on it, I think we've all had those moments where it felt really good to blow something off, right? You mm-hmm. had this thing you were supposed to go to and then at the last minute it gets canceled and you feel relief because there's all this stuff that you would have to do in order to leave your normal routine to go to the special event. And if it was particularly something that may feel like a lot of effort to have gone to, sometimes we can feel relief from getting out of having to do something social. And so if you're really giving your time to someone, it is at least a signal that you are putting in the effort, you value them. And so giving time really is its own form of gift. And I think you will get into this a little bit later. You can't fake active listening. You can kind of tiptoe around the other ones and maybe it's not as sincere You can't fake looking someone in the eyes and hearing what they're saying and responding directly to that. Sure. And I guess the key word is quality time, time where you really feel like you're having some kind of connection. I think that can be kind of a a marker of a relationship that may be 
not as strong is that the time feels like it drags. Mm -hmm. When you have a really good connection with someone, time flies. And I think, you know, time, quality time is a a gift because it feels so fleeting sometimes, those really great moments, as we say, you know, time flies when you're having fun. Exactly. What are your love languages? Sure. My top one was actually touch and acts of service. They're pretty, pretty close to one another. And then I was followed by quality time, words of affirmation, and then receiving gifts. It, I think it's actually very accurate of me. I guess if I'm thinking about love language, the thing that kind of makes relationships romantic relationships special. I may have answered differently for like friendship, but what makes a romantic relationship special is the physical intimacy that you get to have with that person that you don't get to have with other people. And so that's an important aspect of a romantic relationship for me. And then it's the devotion. It's the acts of service. It's what you give to that person that, as you said, you can't fake, particularly because acts of service are doing things that you feel like would help the other person, right? And so that may be doing chores, cooking, helping them do laundry, helping them with something that they need to do, taking the load off of them to make their life a little bit easier. To me, those are real signs of of love. And the other kinds of things, at least to me personally, as you kind of indicated, you can kind of fake some of those things. Mm-hmm. You can fake a gift. You can say words that you that you don't really mean. The actual acts and the touch are to me what really important in a romantic relationship. Did you end up asking your wife what her love languages are? Yeah. And so I thought this was a, it would be actually an interesting exercise for couples to try is to find out your own love language. And what I had my wife do is I answered as I thought she would answer. So I took it twice. Then I had my wife take it for herself and take it for me. And so do we even understand each other's love languages as, as a starting point? The nice thing is that my wife and I know each other pretty well, even though we actually have very, very different love languages. And so whereas touch and acts are really important to me and gifts and words are not important to me, gifts and words are the things that were most important for her, words in, in particular. Going through this exercise actually kind of gave us the perspective to remember that we know these things about each other. And so I try harder to say, you know, words of affirmation, even though when things are said to me, I was like, you're just blowing smoke up my butt. This is just words. It doesn't mean much to me. It means something to her to hear it. And so I've actively tried to kind of change, just add these things, even though, you know, they might not mean a whole lot to me. If I heard them, they mean a lot to her. Do you find you speak each other's love languages pretty well? No. Uh, it's been something to to learn from. To me, the thing that was surprising is we do know each other. We could answer for each other in the way that we answered for ourselves. It, yet we weren't using this in our relationship. And so this is where I actually think this love language is at least kind of knowing each other's love language can really actually be helpful for, for a relationship. Because at least I am mindful of what I should say or how I should say it or what I should do in order to kind of help, you know, her feel valued in the relationship. And even though I knew it, it's like you, I wasn't, sometimes you need literally the language in order to understand how to change your behavior. Mm-hmm. Going because we, we keep touching upon it on how, you know, I can get you a really nice gift, but it means nothing. I can say, I love you. And that's a beautiful thing to say and to receive. But if I don't mean it, it doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You well, you and I seem to be skeptics of these things. Yes. Is that like kind of a normal thing? Is that our own conditioning? Why are we so hesitant to accept these? And is that a general feeling amongst people, maybe amongst men? Or is it us specifically? You know, it's it's a great question. And 
I will admit that I can't say I know the full detail of research here. One of the problems is with personality, what we find is that personalities can be so variable and kind of hard to predict exactly how they relate to, to, to behavior. But I can see how you and I may have some similarities in how we think about the world or approach the world. They may lead us to have different kinds of our particular love language, maybe because we're both people that speak and listen, you know, being a teacher, you being kind of a journalist, uh, maybe words somehow, because we use them so much, don't hold the same value. You know, speculating a little bit. One of the ironies, though, is, is that, you know, you mentioned gifts and you and I are both skeptical of gifts. I was talking to my wife about this. And one of the things she said is, you know, to be able to give a really good gift means you really know that person well. And this is the thing that I have to admit. My wife is actually a, an excellent gift giver, but gifts are the lowest thing on my love language. And so even though she gives me great gifts, they don't have the impact maybe as she would wish that they would have on me. Because even though like this is very thoughtful, I can acknowledge the thought, but it doesn't fill me with the joy or excitement that I think that sometimes she would wish uh, I would have. It was funny, my mother-in-law was staying with us and I was just talking to her and she was telling me about how my wife's father would do something very similar. He would get really excited about Christmas, right? And do all this extra stuff to buy all these gifts and then would often feel disappointed when all these great gifts that he got, even though they were exactly what they wanted, wasn't get, getting the kind of emotional response from the receiver as he had kind of wished they, they had given. Well, one of the things that to me it feels unfulfilling about gifts is that the reaction is so fleeting sometimes. For me, a gift isn't really that great unless it's something that I can use all the time. It's practical. Mm -hmm. And something that's just like a nice thought in the moment doesn't feel as valuable to me. I feel like I'm similar to your wife because I love giving gifts. I love really understanding someone and getting like a good personalized gift or on the flip side, something that's really practical. I, I think appliances are good gifts because if you have a good blender, if you have a good knife set, that makes cooking so much easier. Now, you have to be really into cooking to really accept that. But people like gifts that are really personalized, turning an inside joke into a T-shirt, into a blanket, into a mug, something stupid. People really like that because it feels so much more personalized than, oh, I got you a bottle of wine on the way over. Hearing words of affirmation, getting gifts, having someone do someone in, something in your service, it's all really nice and special. So why do we respond to these gestures of love differently? Again, this is a, an interesting question as to where these individual differences come from. Um, again, it's aspects of personality that could be due to actual genetic factors. It could be due to kind of our learning history. It's going to always be some kind of combination of both. And it may be that the things that we value are the things that feel the most rare to us. Maybe the thing that for whatever reason has learned that we've learned are, are important or, or valuable. For instance, maybe if you grow up with a big family and you're always around people all the time, then maybe quality time doesn't mean as much to you. Maybe if you're someone who's kind of more of a loner and you are t tend to spend more time by yourself, maybe quality time in a relationship holds more meaning to you because it's something that you don't normally have or share with, with somebody else. Likewise, maybe words of affirmation are really important for people who may value boost to their self-esteem or are kind of pick-me-ups. Maybe they may be someone who might be prone to be more depressive or at least uh, more mindful of kind of negative things in their life. And so maybe those words of affirmation
situation are extra pleasurable for them because it gives them a positive feeling that they might not feel. Physical touch, you know, again, maybe if you're someone that comes from a family that isn't very touchy-feely, isn't very affectionate. For instance, my family, you know, we express love for each other, but we're not necessarily a touch-you, touching each other kind of family. And so physical touch is something that is meaningful to me in a romantic relationship because it's not something that I not something that I would express in my kind of friendships or family relationships. And so maybe it's the things that are kind of most rare to us that we value the most. Physical touch is your number one. Physical touch seems so broad to me because of the five love languages, you look at them and there's four that are kind of based off emotion, based off action in a way, and one that's physical. Mm -hmm. And physical touch is kind of a huge umbrella because there's a huge difference between giving someone a rub on the back or patting them on the head and intercourse. Yeah, absolutely. How can physical touch inform how you emotionally feel? When I think about physical touch, I might actually eliminate sexual touch. From, okay. from that as a as a love language. Sexual touch is clearly a lust language. And yeah. there may be aspects of a relationship that really thrive off of the kind of sexual or physical physical elements. But I guess if the goal of our love language is to communicate how we feel about the other person, I think sex is not necessarily always the best communicator of how we feel about the other person. But kissing, I mean, is really, I mean, this is almost kind of a bit cliche, but honestly, a relationship a romantic relationship is, I think, most defined by how much you kiss the other person or your, mm-hmm. or at least the aspects of intimacy that are outside of sex. And so they might not necessarily be kissing for a particular couple, but um, it's these acts of physical touch and intimacy that are not tied to, hey, at the end of this, I hope we can have sex. You know, one of us can have an orgasm at the end of this, because then there's more of a selfish motive to it, as opposed to I'm touching you to show that I'm connected to you, that I'm reassuring you, or I just want to remind you of how much I like you. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to the authenticity of it, you can't fake the physical touch you're talking about. You can't really fake how someone feels when you pat their hand Mm -hmm. or when you give them a hug. But again, I, I think sex is kind of easier to fake because I think that's a different need you're trying to satisfy. Sure. And so a result of an interesting study that I had read um, is that one of the ways that you can actually judge whether a relationship is a warm, trusting relationship, a relationship where the people feel secure in it, is actually how the person reacts to being touched by by their partner. That when you're in a good relationship, one that is marked by trust and real feelings of intimacy, then when your partner touches you or like gives you a little massage, again, you get this like, like release of oxytocin, this, you know, is again, commonly known as the cuddle um, chemical, this hormone that's associated with social bonding. But in people who didn't have good trusting relationships, their partner could touch them, but they would not react in the same way. They wouldn't have that kind of hormonal, emotional kind of release as you get with the couples who have a good trusting relationship. And so it's possible that, you know, good intimate physical touch really can't be faked either. And that if the person that you're with touches you and makes you not feel warm, then it may be a sign again that you're not in a good, the best kind of relationship for you. Before he was an author, Dr. Chapman was a counselor. And so I'm curious, how are these five love languages kind of viewed in the psychology community? Is there like scientific research that people have found to back this up? Or is it, as you said earlier, pop psychology? So there may be studies that have that have looked at this. You know, the 
work of, for instance, like a marriage counselor is often kind of different from the work of your kind of average PhD research social psychologist. But one may be based more in practical experience. And so marriage counselors in dealing with the actual ins and outs of couples and the kinds of things that they're fighting about may come up with kind of a common sense, you know, notion about what are the things that are making couples have trouble with one another without necessarily the statistical tables and the independent variables, the controlled, randomized controlled studies. There are a few people that kind of bridge this gap. One of the most famous is someone by the name of John Gottman. He's the one, I'm not sure if you heard of this, that gave us the idea of the four horsemen of divorce, which are these kind of behaviors that you see in married couples. But with this particular five love languages, I don't think there's been a ton of real in-depth empirical research on it. It does seem like a way to just have an open conversation with your partner about what you appreciate they do for you and what you'd like them to do more. I think it's worthwhile. I really think it's it's a worthwhile exercise if you want to be more to more effectively communicate what you feel for your partner. You you want your partner to feel valued. And maybe you feel like you're working really hard at showing them that, but it's not having the impact that you want and you're getting these miscommunications. Well, maybe it's because you're you don't really understand the most effective way to kind of show that person how much you care. Um, and so if you put that little extra effort in, again, I try to say more words of affirmation because those words mean something to, to my wife, even if to me, I'm like, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, you love me. Uh-huh. You want, you want Megs? But for her, like, she wants to hear, you know, that I love her. She wants to hear that, you know, she's doing a really great job. She wants to hear that I appreciate her. And I say, of course, I appreciate you. Don't you, don't you see all the things I do? I do laundry, I, you know, spending time, you know, cooking. I made this great meal for you. My acts of service are how I'm trying to communicate. But sometimes she needs to hear it. And so being mindful of that is, I think, really useful. Absolutely. Is it true the brain kind of stops to developing at age 25? Yeah. So there's truth to this, that if you're going to talk about synaptic connections, having kind of a certain level of what we call plasticity, which means that your brain can still kind of help kind of rewire itself. A lot of that stuff kind of does shut down around 25. It's also where your frontal lobes is part of our brains that kind of give us the most control and regulation over our behavior, kind of really kind of ends its development. The reason I ask is because so many of our formative relationships are when we're teenagers or in our early 20s. Absolutely. And as we're getting older and we're maturing and we're in different relationships, I'm curious, can your love language change over time? So this is very similar to the idea of, are you familiar with the idea of attachment? Yes. So, so this is kind of a classic thing from developmental psychology where you test infants, you separate them in essence from their mother, they're exposed to a stranger, and then you see how the infants respond to when their mother returns. How easily can the mother comfort them? And so uh, we have learned about these different kinds of attachment styles, one of the best being a secure attachment, which means if your mom, when your mom comes back, the baby is, is quickly comforted and feels secure in their relationship. And then you can have these other kinds of attachments, anxious and avoidant, which are which are more kind of negative. They may lead to more dysfunction later on in our romantic relationships. Those are have often thought to be kind of set in stone, but it turns out that they're not, that they can change with their experiences. I would assume that our love language could, could change with, the, with experiences as well, that we may learn to value things differently than we did before. I'm sure if I took 
the five love languages test when I was 20 or um, even 25, I would probably give different results than I do now as a 45-year-old man. Maybe when, if I were to take it when I'm 60, I might I might also give some different results. That the things that we learn to value change um, with, with age. Because that's exactly what I was thinking. Can your love language change with different partners? Can you crave touch yeah. from someone where you crave words of affirmation from another? I absolutely think so. You know, I think one of the things that we often take for granted is how much we change as a result of our relationships. There are, of course, certain fundamental core aspects of us. But as they say, relationships kind of bring certain things out of you. The dynamic that you have with one person may be very, very different than the kind of dynamic that you have with another person. Our bad relationships are often ones where we become someone that we don't like as much. And our, our good relationships are ones where we feel like we're getting the best side of ourselves. Our partner may bring things out in us that we may have dreamed of, that we may have wanted to enhance, but maybe didn't have the courage to. You know, the partner that encouraged you to go up on stage and sing because that's what you really wanted to do and you've always been too embarrassed to do it. That might be the kind of person that can bring good stuff out in us as opposed to a partner that may be like, oh, you know, I mean, you're okay. You're not that great. Who could shame us into not pursuing those kinds of dreams. It's funny. If you, if you have a partner, like you said, who's always encouraging you, can you kind of get conditioned to that? Could you, if your love language is words of affirmation and your partner knows this and they're constantly giving you genuine, meaningful words of affirmation, can you kind of get conditioned to this and almost it become an expectation and not a supplement to your relationship? So you mean that, so I, I guess that, do you mean take it for granted or do you mean actually believe that what they're saying is true about you? I would say take it for granted. I would say like acts of service, right? You make dinner every night and then your significant other now expects dinner every night. Oh, sure. And so when when it's gone, it's no longer, oh, well, I'm so grateful they did this for me all those nights. I can take care of myself today. It, it You become resentful of the lack of it. Oh, I think absolutely. I think you could certainly take things for granted. I, and I think one of the issues that can often come up in relationships is people not feeling that they're being treated fairly, right? that they're mm-hmm. not... The, the, the things that they're adding or contributing to the relationship aren't being valued. If what I am doing is a way to try to communicate, I shouldn't say as a way to try to communicate, but it's kind of the, the way that I communicate uh, my love for someone is, let's say, through these acts of service. And my partner just comes to expect it as as their right almost you know this is just a role that i play then i i could absolutely see how it would make you feel devalued in your in your relationship and it could also make the other person you know expect that from not just you in relation but could maybe expect it in, in other relationships we there are bad relationship partners um relationship partners that expect you to give them a lot without necessarily reciprocating one of the theories about relationships is something known as the investment model, which has some different components to it. But one of the ideas is that everyone has a different kind of what you would call expectation level, meaning that how much do you expect to get out of your relationship versus how much do you expect to put in to the relationship? Some people expect to get a lot without necessarily having to return a lot. Um, others expect that they're going to have to put a lot in. And they might not get a lot in return. What makes often people most happy in a relationship if they feel equity, fairness. And so if I'm the kind of person that expects to get a lot from from the relationship, but not have to do a lot of work for it, but my partner 
is also expecting to get a lot from the relationship, one of us is not going to be very, very happy. And so finding people that are matching your expectation level. Are you giving me what I think I deserve, in essence, in, in a relationship for how much that I put into the relationship? Is it bad to have low expectations in a relationship or is that maybe good? There's less pressure on it. I, I don't think it's good to have low expectations in a relationship because low expectations means that you're, you, you are not necessarily looking to be happy. You're looking to just satisfy something because maybe you don't feel like you have better alternatives. I think what we want is a level of expectation that matches our feelings of, of what we deserve. And to feel like you don't deserve much is is probably not the best philosophy in life. Because if you don't expect much in a relationship, it's possible that you're not getting your full value in the workplace or getting it from your friendships or even uh, from from your family. Which is so sad to hear, you know? This is, of course, why we try to encourage people to find happiness. The thing I don't want to say is self-esteem, because I think self-esteem is a very misunderstood term. I'm not sure if we've had this discussion before or not, but one of the problems with self-esteem is that you should not seek to feel good about yourself just to feel good about yourself. Because that can often lead people to kind of limit themselves. That what we really want is people to seek a certain kind of self-improvement, right? Where we feel good about ourselves because of things that we are striving to achieve or do, or again, ways that we're trying to improve upon ourselves. And so even when we think about our kind of low self-esteem person, what I would encourage that person to do is not to feel high self-esteem and feel good about themselves just to feel good about themselves. But what I would encourage them to do is to seek things that make them feel better about themselves, something that they could do, some kind of action, you know, learn something, start a hobby, challenge yourself to do something that you wouldn't normally do. That's what I would uh, encourage. One of those things might be seek a relationship that is one that you know you deserve as opposed to ones that you may have settled for in the past. Because one of the things we've talked about on a couple different episodes of this show is almost your expectations for yourself and being enough for yourself. And I think so many people just want the general term better. They want a better relationship, but they don't know what that looks like. They want to look better, but they don't know, do they want a better haircut? Do they want to lose weight? And so you really need to do, yeah, you need to do a lot of self-reflection, know what you think are your flaws and what you would like to personally improve on, and then grow from that and gain validation from that. But don't just take a, a weekend vacation because you feel good that weekend. And then when you come home, all your problems are still there. Yeah. I mean, finding this is something that's actually used in the weight loss community sometimes. Finding your why. Uh, what is the thing that you're really trying to achieve? What is your real motivation? Because you need a true motivation if you're going to persevere with something that might be difficult. Whether that's giving yourself the confidence to get out of a relationship or giving yourself the confidence to kind of get back out there on the market, you know, or to speak up for yourself in in a relationship that, you know, you may feel like you're being undervalued in. But part of it is, you know, remembering your your why, your your motivation. What are you after? And sometimes it really is so that, you know, you can be happy in a way that doesn't require feeling like you're always sacrificing something for someone else. Absolutely. And I believe it was last week's show in this will air. We were talking about the the craving to be in a relationship. And I think that's such a misleading feeling. You know, I'm a single person. Of course, I would love to be in a very happy, supportive relationship where I feel like it's a partnership. A good looking man. (laughs) Well, I've been inside for for a couple months. Oh, well, that's true. true. (laughs) But 
thank you for saying that. But I don't seek that attention because I one, relationships are really, really hard and they're hard to get right. And so I think if you are craving a relationship, if you're looking for that validation from someone else, likely even if you meet someone great, they're not going to be able to give you that validation because you need to seek it from within. Yeah, I mean, there's so much truth to that, the being able to be honest with yourself. being I think one of the, the first steps of really being ready for a relationship is being able to be accountable for your own actions, being able to acknowledge your strengths and your weaknesses, and to look at your past, you know, particularly if you've already been in relationships, to kind of look at what role you may have played in why the relationships that you had in the past didn't, didn't work out. It can be mm-hmm. very easy to blame all of our exes as being something wrong with them that made those relationships fall apart. But if we're all going to be, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, there's probably something that we are responsible for too, either in seeking out relationships that we know aren't really good for us or doing other things within the relationship to make it hard for the our, for us to be good partners to them. That's such a great point because I think I look at some of my past relationships, especially one that was very serious, like that was on me. I wasn't open enough and I couldn't communicate how I was feeling. And it wasn't about them in particular, but I couldn't be open to how much I was struggling with my surroundings. Yeah. And some of this, you know, I, I you know, ha- have had conversations. Can I, can I ask how old you are, Dan? Is that too? Yeah, of course. I'm 27. 27. Ah, yeah. I remember, you know, coming to revelations of, you know, in my thirties about things that I had done, you know, mistakes that I made, you know, when I was in my, in my twenties and it's still this kind of, you know, I'm not, hopefully I will finally become a mature adult man, but there are times when I can identify when it's exactly that. I just didn't know how to express myself in the way that I needed to express myself to really communicate what was going on with me. And I wish I could rewind the clock and, you know, have the foresight and the words to explain things, you know, feelings of being overwhelmed, you know, feelings of a lack of connection. Um, And I think when we don't have those words, we can be really immature in relationships that are that are unfair to, to the other person, whether it's, you know, things like ghosting, uh, whether it's getting the other person to be unsatisfied with you so that they end up kind of calling it off so you don't have to have the burden of breaking up with them. I think being able to look within ourselves from our past relationships is really one of the important things to grow. It's funny you say go back and like knowing what you know now and going back and acting like that, because what what doesn't bother me about why that relationship failed is that I know I couldn't have done anything differently. I needed to go through the the years of experience and the trials I did afterwards sure. to come to the re- realization of my eyes opened to my behavior in that relationship. Yeah, of course. You're not the same person. You're no. constantly changing evolution. There is some core elements that seem to remain, but I'm constantly adding on to it. And so I think that's actually very insightful to realize that that version of you at that time probably wasn't able to do it, even if a version of you now can do it. The thing to remember is that you are a different person now and to Mm -hmm. add these extra elements of who you are into your future relationships. Yeah, you you can't change the past. This is true, but you can learn from it. That's the most important thing. And that's what you need to do. My last question, a lot of people probably use the five love languages when they're in relationships as a way to open up a conversation about what can I do for you more? How can we help each other out? But it is just a step. Knowing each other's love language 
cannot heal a relationship entirely. And so I would ask, what do you think are some things you, a struggling couple can do to help navigate their issues? Oh, well, it really depends on what the source of the struggling is. You know, mm-hmm. I think one of the hard things about relationships is, is realizing that sometimes relationships are not meant to work out. But if you really want that relationship to work and you just don't know what's going wrong, right? Because sometimes we're unhappy in a relationship and we just want the damn thing to be over. But sometimes we want that relationship to work out. It's just, it's just this struggle that we're having. And so if you really value that relationship, I feel like something like love languages could be useful, at least in giving you some insight into into the other person. Uh, but it, of course, it's not going to fix the relationship, but it's really about, do you understand what's going wrong in that relationship? And so whether mm-hmm. it's love languages, whether it's some other Cosmo quiz that you that you can take, whether it's going to a professional relationship counselor, whether it's doing something that you've never done before. This is one of the kind of quick and easy ways to try to bring spark into your relationship. Do something that the two of you have never done before just to get something new into the relationship to, to break the rut. If you really want it to work out, though, you I think you have to find ways of communicating that you want it to work. Again, you know, not all relationships are, are, are meant to, 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 be, to be saved, but if you want that relationship to work out, you got to first figure out what's really going wrong. And so the love languages or some other kind of thing that can help you give relationship insight is really going to be the first step. Learning your partner's love language can't mend a broken relationship, but it can help you figure out how to be more open with each other. And that's really what makes a great relationship. Thank you to Dr. Johnson for coming on the show today. Next week, relationship and lifestyle writer Julia Pukachevsky and I talk about her work, including how a list of grievances saved her relationship and emotional boners. You'll have to wait till next week to find out what that is on Out of Love. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please email us at outofloveshow at gmail.com. Please subscribe to and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Out of Love is a production of WeWo Media and is recorded at Hex Street Studios. It is hosted and produced by me, Dan Casarella. The show is mixed by Ethan Farmer, our associate producer. Aaron Bradley is our art director. The opening theme is Acolyte, and the closing theme is Toronto Mug, both written and performed by Slaughtered Beach Dog. Special thanks to Amanda Dark Angelist, DJ Mojica, Tessa Judd, John Alba, and Sarah Casarella for lending their voices to our intro today. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Stay lovely. <laughs>